This morning I want to continue the inquiry that we started last week into how we relate to what we can call collectively our views, but that really, uh, in a way, include our opinions, our ideas, our uh, principles, our uh, social, political, spiritual understandings. How do we relate in a path of practice path of coming to a greater awakening, how do we relate to all our ideas? In a word, how do we relate to the thinking mind? That's what I want to look at and continue. Last time we opened up that area in the context of looking at the theme of working with the judgmental mind. I'm working on a book on this, as, as most of you know. And I wanted to look at our views and how we get attached to views as being an area very linked to understanding and working with the judgmental mind. And we can see that uh, the judgmental mind and attachment to views is linked with uh, quite a bit of suffering. Personally, interpersonally, socially, in the world... Um, that how do we act skillfully with differences in views? That's the question. So I'm going to explore that and not not make so much of a link as I have in past times to the work with judgmental mind, but go right into it. I'd like to probably speak for half hour, then do an exercise together for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll have a discussion. So, and the the exercise is a lot of fun, so I'm looking forward to it. At least it's fun for me to contemplate offering it to you. (laughs) We'll see. So, the normal workings of our mind take us to different levels of generalization and abstraction. We have views, we have opinions, we have narratives, we have... uh, Uh, understandings, we have principles, and how do we work with these? How do we understand them? What are the challenges? The offering or the um, suggestion that we have from the teachings of the Buddha and from many other traditions is that we can be skillful with views but that attachment to views is a big problem. That, and we're going to look into how do we explore our views and how do we explore where, atta- where we're attached to views. I gave a number of practices last time that help us to inquire, to start inquiring in this way. And what I'll suggest is that there are ways that we can start to explore this issue and see where we're attached on more gross levels. And there are also a number of subtle levels where we may have uh, attachment to views that we're hardly aware of. And I'm going to start to go into the more subtle area. I'll reserve a more detailed account of the subtle kinds of attachment to views for next time. And I think I'll also do some exercises. So we'll continue with with the inquiry that we've had. 
So we know, we know that it's part of human life to use the thinking mind in a way which goes beyond the uh, immediate observations that we have, the immediate data, the immediate experiences we have. We go to all kinds of different levels of generalization. <clears throat> and again, uh, how do we use that skillfully? How, is that, how do we use that skillfully in the process of learning, of growing, of developing uh, qualities like compassion and wisdom, responsiveness in relation to ourselves and others. So maybe first of all, good to remember what some of our attachment to views look, look like. I invited people last time to develop your list of your top five or your top ten attachment to views. And I want to, again, just to uh, give a little bit of material for our inquiry, invite you right now to think of a view that you've been attached to in the last 24 or 48 hours. And if you need to go further back to find one, feel free. Just take a moment now to reflect. And let's have an example or two, or three or four, uh, given just as the actual view that you're attached to in a sentence or two. And I'll repeat these. Please. If Donald Trump wins the presidency, the world will be in If Donald Trump wins the presidency, the world will be in terrible danger. And uh, how many have had views that are in that area in the last week. <laughs> okay. And, uh, yeah, I'm in working on my book on judgments. I'm, as I mentioned last time, I think I'm navigating how much to bring in about the 2016 election campaign. <laughs> um, one of, and one of the... I, I've actually brought in a book today that is... Uh, that has plenty of examples of attachment to views but sees as an issue, actually, in public discourse. This is a book, a recent book, by James Hogan called I'm Right and You're an Idiot. <laughs> Subtitle, The Toxic State of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up. So I'm right and you're an idiot. Very interesting, I've been reading it. <laughs> and uh, it often is that way in public discourse, sadly. Um, good, another one, please. Yeah. People should clean up their own messes. Remember, these are views we're attached to. Yeah. Power and greed and money are running a lot of the decision making in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one more? Please. The evangelical right scares me. Yeah. And you feel some attachment to that, or the evangelical right is scary, might be a way of saying it, right? Good. So, um, what we'll be looking at in part, we'll be looking at what uh, the nature of attachment to views are, why attachment to views are a problem. We'll go a little more deeply than we did last time. <clears throat> and we'll also look in a little more depth at this question of 
what's the difference between attachment to views, which we, again, we'll bring out why that's an issue, why that's a problem. What's the difference between attachment to views and commitment to a principle? Or commitment to a view, what's the difference? Or what's the difference between, how do we distinguish between what's valid in a given view and and the problem of attachment, right? Because we're not inviting us just to, okay, drop all your views immediately. I mean, if you were at a depth of wisdom and compassion, we, we would say that. If we were at a sufficient depth the actual the notion is that if we're actually at rest in our deeper hearts and minds, we actually don't need views because wisdom and compassion flows out of that without putting it into words. You know, we know we know that maybe some of the most loving people we know may not have many views, right? Do you know that one? Think of or think of sometimes when you have felt most loving and wise, and there may not be many views there. So they're, 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 that's, we're getting into some of the subtleties of this area. <clears throat> now it's very clear <clears throat> that in the tradition, the Buddha counseled not clinging to views, watching out for attachment to views. <clears throat> and he also counseled following certain views. How do we disentangle those? So <clears throat> he the general approach that we have in that tradition, and I think as I mentioned last time, is that our views are best understood pragmatically. That is, they shouldn't be taken as absolute truths, but they can help us, some, of, some views can help us live more skillfully, but they shouldn't be taken as absolutes. That was more or less the response he's going to have on that. And so he said, watch out for any attachment to views, even to my views. And some of the interesting discussions in the tradition, given this approach, have been people in the Buddhist tradition looking into how Buddhists can get attached to views. It's been a very interesting part of the inquiry, going back several, you know, going back 2,000 years. You can see that. It's actually fascinating because you have this dynamic, and I'll talk more about that next time, about how how some of that works. But you have this dynamic where you have the Buddha originally being very pragmatic, pointing to modes of experience which are liberating, which go beyond views, and saying that it's helpful to have views which we take in a way provisionally or lightly which help us, but we don't want to be attached to them. And partly for that reason, he didn't really pin down a lot of his uh, theories or his answers to things. He left a lot of questions open. Later Buddhist tradition wanted to pin things down. They wanted to pin things down and saying, <clears throat> what are the, <clears throat> the ultimate constituents of experience? What happens at death? You know, what happens, what's the nature of consciousness? You know, what reincarnates? If any, you know, because the claim is something does. And a lot of this was left quite open and the emphasis was pragmatic. Later traditions, they wanted to get answers and they came up with things that were, they were later, many of these were later accused by some of the great uh, philosophers, a philosopher like Nargajana who re- wanted to return 
to the Buddhas of the original vision who criticized much of tradition for being attached to views. And we can also see how that dynamic is there in most religious traditions, isn't it? That the issue of attachment to views is a big one. It's a big one in contemporary religion, in Christianity or Judaism, with, with generally a certain group of people wanting to really have very clear, firm principles that in a sense one does want to attach to, and others saying, you're missing the essence of what we're talking about. Right? So that dynamic is there historically, and we can see that even being played out now in contemporary uh, religion, right? In many of the contemporary religions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, um, all, all the other ones too, the Asian traditions as well. <clears throat> now, uh, the, the concept of view is a translation of the word ditti, D-I-T-I, or D-I-T-T-H-I. And that is a, a word, generally, that's the word that the Buddha used. Uh, and that's translated as, as view. He thought that views were either skillful or unskillful. That's how he really assessed views. Are these skillful or are they unskillful? Skillful is uh, kusala, unskillful is a kusala. And skillful means, does it help me essentially to learn, to come towards awakening, to come towards freedom, to come towards liberation? And he had this very pragmatic sense. And what's interesting about that is that it's actually possible, given that understanding, to use a generally skillful view in an unskillful way. So then the, we have the first question is, is this view skillful or unskillful? And then secondly, what's a skillful or unskillful way of using the view? Which sets up that possibility of using a wonderful understanding unskillfully, particularly by being attached to it. And so, we, um, so there's, there's kind of a, a sequence of practice, where first we want to be mindful of our views, then we want to assess, are these skillful views, and then am I using the skillful view skillfully? That's where we get into attachment. It's kind of a three-step process. Mindfulness of view, is this a skillful view to hold, and am I, hold, am I using the skillful view skillfully? So generally, we want skillful use of skillful views. But again, it sets up the possibility we can have these wonderful views, including... Uh, political views, social views, ecological views, spiritual views, and we can use those unskillfully even if they're good views. That's, that's important here because I, there's, I know in myself, and maybe this was reflective of the sense of attachment to views, there can be a sense, I've got the right view. Whatever I do is okay. Do you know that one? I'm in the right you know, it's like that uh, epitaph on a gravestone in some cemetery where it says, he had the right of way. <laughs> a little bit like that with views. So we can have views we think are great and we can use it to trash people or to alienate people and so forth, right? We know that, right? So that's, this, is, this is an overview. So there are these... Uh, Wonderful stories that bring out this point. I gave one of them last time 
of the Buddha says that the teachings that I give are like a raft to take one to the other shore to get to liberation. And he says, once you get to the other shore, it would be very stupid to carry the raft around on your shoulders and on your head. You'd be literally attached to the raft. <laughs> right? And he said, rather, he said, this is a quote from the teachings, you who understand the teachings being similar to a raft, you should let go even of good teachings, let alone bad ones. You should let go of good teachings. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. That's, that's one of the teachings we have. And then <clears throat> another very fundamental teaching, which I didn't mention last time, is the teaching of the Kalama Sutta, which is, uh, I like the story because it's, it's kind of like our situation. The, there were a people called the Kalamas who lived in a town called Kesaputta in ancient India, northern India, and they were at a crossroads, which meant they had all sorts of people coming through, kind of like the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, if you look in your local newspaper or spiritual paper, you can see all sorts of advertisements for spiritual workshops, retreats, talks, giving a hundred different views, right? Look in your local newspaper, you have a choice, you can go to Spirit Rock, you even have 20 choices of Spirit Rock. You can, go to, you, can go to, you can go to this, you can go to learn about, you know, learn about how to achieve enlightenment in one weekend for a steep price. <laughs> you know, learn about how to free your mind psychologically. Learn about how to do this. Learn how to about do that. And a lot of the views may be in conflict with each other, right? So you can see that. And, and uh, Kesaputa was like this. There were all these wandering teachers and they gave... They said different things. And so the, the Kalamas said, we're confused. We have all these different teachings. What should we do? How should we, how should we uh, go about? We want to learn, but we're very confused by this multitude of spiritual teachings. Anyone had that experience? All these different views? Okay. Um, and so here's, here's his response. He said, first of all, don't believe something because of tradition. This is 2,500 years ago. Don't believe it because of tradition. Don't believe it because of hearsay. Don't believe it because your conclusion is the result of logical thinking. Don't believe it because reports. Don't believe it because you, the person who says it is your teacher. Don't believe it because the person who says it is a teacher. So you can apply that to, to my talk. <laughs> okay. He said, rather, you should examine every view in terms of how, it, how it, you assess it in terms of your own experience of does this help me to become freer? Does this help me to see clearly, does this help me to open my heart? This is what he said. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful or unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and suffering, then abandon them. Don't follow something which leads to those negative outcomes. When you know for yourself 
that these qualities are skillful, these are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities when adopted and carried out lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter into and remain in them. So really inviting, looking very radically at any of our views, any of our practices, and asking, do they work? Really, that's the invitation in meditation. We don't say, believe this blindly. We say, try it out. Now, sometimes we say, it takes a little while to try it out. (laughs) You know, try it out for one month or two months or six months. But then you may have a sense that this is helpful, right? And is grounded in your experience. You know, maybe initially we go by a friend who maybe has, maybe we think, oh, this person has blossom. This person used to be deeply attached to views and now is much less attached to views, is only attached to views about meditation. <laughs> and so we, we may adopt the practice. So we want, to, we want to look at that pragmatically. And so he said, in particular, that attachment to view can be a problem. And he particularly singled out Actually, again, 2,500 years ago, attachment to religious views, and in particular to views which you can't really uh, assess by your own experience. So he criticized the main views of his time, which were, is the world uh, eternal? Is the world finite? Are the mind and the soul, the mind or the soul the same as the body? Are they the same or different? You know? And Does the Buddha exist after death or not? And he said these were questions which could not be answered. We can think of our contemporary counterparts. And he really, so he really tried to to keep every, all views, uh, that one that would be skillful, ones that one could assess experientially, the ones that one could see pretty quickly, do these pragmatically help me in my life? He said we could also be attached to all sorts of other views. We can be attached to religious views. We can be attached to views about religious practices, about rites and rituals. We can be attached to views about ourself. You know? And he, he said there were 20 different views about self that we could be attached to. And we could, we could see this when we look more psychologically. We could see that a lot of our attachment to views that we've sometimes looked at in the context of looking at judgments are more subtle. I may have views based on my uh, personal conditioning, my personal history. I may ha- have the view that I'm good at this, I'm not good at this. I may have the view that this is a problem in my life, right? I haven't done this, I haven't done that. I may have a very fixed view which may come from our conditioning. When I work with people on the judgmental mind, a lot of times we're looking at fixed views that may have started when people were four years old or six years old or eight years old, often being about personal inadequacy. I'm not okay. And often, you know, so, you know sort of a contemporary looking at views, particularly looking at more subtle views, we want to look at those views connected with psychological conditioning. We've also looked at times at the views connected with social conditioning. You know, we could say that views related to racism or sexism or uh, class or whatever, age and so forth, we have all sorts of conditioned views related to these social categories. And I think if, if we actually, and one of the difficult things about views is a lot of them are unconscious, right? 
I've mentioned sometimes that when they've done implicit bias tests related to, uh, particularly to, to racism, they find that people's professed views are often in conflict with their implicit views about race. Do you know that one? Right? It's pretty interesting. You can take that test and go to the Harvard implicit bias test and take that for yourself. But they, what they've done, what they've shown through uh, research is that we have all these views and they actually can be in contradiction with our professed views. What they also showed is that the implicit views, the ones we don't know, are a more accurate predictor of behavior than the professed views. Right? So there are these subtle dimensions of views. If we're, the commitment of our practice is actually to look into our views and all attachment to views, it's harder because a lot of our views are subtle. It's harder in that way. And we're going to look more at that, more at that next time. Our starting point is going to be to look at the grosser kinds of views, the ones that we mentioned this morning about uh, political candidates, you know, about uh, power structures and so forth, about, uh, about other people. <clears throat> so in a way, this, this uh, aim of looking at views is an ambitious one. It's also one that has these different levels. We, we really start by looking at the views that are most apparent for ourselves. As we do that, we'll start to see more subtle views. The aim, again, <clears throat> is to, number one, know what our views are, to assess whether they're skillful or unskillful. You know, if I look into my views that I'm not okay about this or that, we pretty much know that that's unskillful. That doesn't help my life, right? But it still may have tremendous impact. We may know that some of my views connect with my social conditioning, you know, related to the different social hierarchies, may not be skillful. How do I work with those? You know, so we, we start with what's there first. And so we, we gave, uh, I gave several practices last time. One of them was just to really track your views and be mindful of them. Notice particularly where you're attached to views. Notice where there's some sticking point. Notice what happens when you're attached to views. And this is part of the way that we can see what the problem is with attachment to views. When you have conflicts with other people, often they're based in a mutual attachment to views, right? Or both having, I should say, both having attachment to views. When we're judgmental, very typically there's some kind of attachment to views or some tightness. When we're attached to views, we typically can't listen to another person. When I'm in a polarized way of uh, being attached to a view, very often... I can't listen to another view. I can't even contemplate an alternative, right? I'm caught, as it were, in a polarization. That can lead to conflict. It can lead to breakdown of relationships, right? It can lead to not hearing from the other person and, and an inability to listen, right? And, and there's probably typically little empathy or compassion for heart there. That's what we want to see. Look at your mindfulness of views. Draw up your top five. Draw up your top ten. That was our first practice. Second practice what, that I gave came out of my own experience of, I mentioned the story last time, of being with this group of people. We were in this project called Revisioning Philosophy. In a past life, I, was a, I taught philosophy for seven years at universities. 
And uh, um, in the midst of that, I was invited as a young teacher to this really wonderful project called Revisioning Philosophy, which is going to bring back the wisdom dimension that, that's there in the name. Sophia uh, uh, is the name for the goddess of wisdom. And that's what philosophy was named after. And, and so we had this wonderful project. There were people like Houston Smith, uh, Robert Bella, Susan Griffin was involved in it, uh, Charlene Spretnik, a, a lot of uh, wonderful people. Jacob Needleman, anyone study with him at San Francisco State? Maybe some of you. Wonderful people. And um, after a while, we noticed that we started to have different views. And lo and behold, even these wonderful people who are aspiring towards wisdom with views seem to be attached, seem to have charges. There seemed to be polarization in the room at times. And one person then made a suggestion, which I loved. When you notice a charge around a view, let it be the starting point for inquiry rather than war. And I just said, whoa, this is, this is what I need. <laughs> this is good. You know, and so I actually followed as a practice for several years and still often do. And it, it really means that you can, when you notice a difference of views, rather than getting tight and rather than, you know, sort of planting your heels, as they say, and giving reasons for your view, can you take it as a starting point for looking? doesn't mean giving up your view, but can, it, can you take it as a starting point for looking carefully? Why is there such a charge? Is there something I might learn from the other person? What's there? Is there something in my history that makes it hard for me to listen? And we can really take this as an ongoing practice. You can take this watching the presidential debates later this month. Although, sorry, that's advanced practice. That we'll, we'll <laughs> that we'll deal with next week. <laughs> okay, but start, with, start where it's simpler. Start with something where either someone you like, start with just you know, uh, something in your own family or household. You know, someone has a different view. Can you start and really listen? It really is connected with the third practice, which is that of really radical listening. Can I listen to someone, particularly someone with a different view? You know, and I, I remember uh, practicing like this. Uh, I was with a group of people who were, we were kind of, uh, I don't know, anti-nuclear activists. And we had a retreat, which was an interfaith retreat at Los Alamos National Laboratory. I probably talked about this from time to time. And we did a retreat there. And uh, the people at Los Alamos, this was actually right before 9-11, and probably wouldn't be able to do that now. But we did a retreat, and the people at Los Alamos said, um, <clears throat> you can do a retreat here on our property, but you have to do it in the parking lots, and you can't use our bathrooms. So what was the solution? We rented an RV with a bathroom, and we used the RV for shade. But anyway, the, the point of I'm saying is that every lunch we met with the staff of Los Alamos, the people on this retreat, which was about 25 people, and we met and had lunch with people and we talked about nuclear weapons. We ended up talking with them and people, it was very interesting. And about half of the group got into polarized discussions and about half the group really were interested in dialogue and listening with people with very different views. It was fascinating to do that. And then we came back at night around a campfire and we talked about it, what we had experienced. It was very interesting and I actually did some writing on it. I really loved that ability to try to be open to people with very different views and just listen. 
And I found, you know, that there generally was some common ground that we could go to. But it took the listening. I think that's what's being pointed to in this book. I'm right and you're an idiot. Okay. Okay. So I want to do an exercise now. This is a, a fourth practice. And this will require you forming uh, into a dyad. So right now, go into a dyad and sit with that person, uh, cross from that person so you could talk to that person. Okay. Do that right now. Okay, raise your hand if you need a partner, okay? Okay, very good, we have an even number of people, great. And is there anyone here who, what I'm going to do is we're going to be using repeating questions. Is anyone familiar with that technique from the diamond heart? Could you come up and we'll, we'll model it up here. Okay. And do we, have a, do we have a microphone handy? Okay. Okay. So this is a, this is a, a technique which is, uh, this is a technique which has been developed by Hamid Ali, also known as A.H. Almas, who developed the diamond heart approach. How many of you are familiar with, with the repeating question technique? This is, a, this, is a very, this is an inquiry process which we'll use for working with views in which uh, basically um, you would say something, why don't you say this right now, like, tell me a way that you're attached to a view. Tell me a way that you're attached to a view. I'm attached to a view when I get kind of uh, uh, polarized with someone else. Okay. Thank you. And, and she would then say thank you and then repeat the question again. Tell me a way you're attached to a view. Uh, sometimes with political views I get attached. Now the answers don't have to be short necessarily. You can go on for a minute if you want to. You can go on as you wish, but I'm, I'm doing it short for the sake of time. So sometimes when I get attached to political views. Okay. Thank you. Tell me a way you're attached to a view. Well, I was thinking of family disputes. Okay, so you get the idea? And each time, that we, you know, we'll have a chance for both people to take the role. Each time, the person will, basically, you'll, you'll have as much time as you want. Like I say, you could give a one-sentence answer. You can give a three-sentence answer. You can talk for a minute if you're on a roll. And f- do what you feel like. But there's good, after you finish, the person will say, thank you. Tell me a way that you're attached to a view. And you can, um, you know, if necessary, you can shift the question a little bit if that's helpful. Okay, clear about the technique. And we're going to do this for about four minutes each. Okay, now the idea here is that you'll have a few ideas about how to answer and you'll exhaust them after about a minute or two. <laughs> what happens after you get, after you're exhausted, that's when the inquiry, in a sense, starts because you'll have stuff coming and you, where's that coming from, you know, and what's there. So yes, it has a chance to go into the unconscious to territory. Is that, you get that? Okay. Yeah. And... Yeah. No. No, 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 you, you just, you give a fresh answer every time. You give a fresh answer. Tell me a way that you're attached to a view, and I might think of this. 
Thank you. Tell me a way that you're attached to view. I might go to something totally different. I'm attached to, you know, um, this food should not be eaten by human beings. <laughs> you know. Um, and then, thank you. <laughs> Tell me a way that you're attached to a view. And you just keep on going. Whatever there is, the idea is to be fresh and in the present moment. Okay? Any other questions about whether you got the idea? Yeah. Yeah, I'll time you, and I'll ring a bell um, to finish, and then just finish the one you're on, and then we'll shift, okay? And then we'll come back and talk together, okay? Any other questions? Do you? Okay, uh, raise your hand if you're going to go first. Decide who's going to go first, okay? Okay, but don't start yet. Uh, introduce yourself if you haven't, okay? Okay. Okay. Um, everyone know who's going first? Okay. I'll have four minutes and start now.
so finish up and and switch. Thank your partner and now switch. So bring your response to a close. Thank your partner. And I'm actually going to do one more round, a little briefly, a little more briefly. I want to ask a complimentary question, which is tell me what helps you to be uh, less attached to views, okay, or something like that. Tell me, um, tell, tell me what ha- helps you not to be attached to views or to be less attached. You got it? So we're, we're bringing out both the attachment and then what's helpful. Okay? You got the question? Tell me what helps you to be less attached to views. You clear? We're going to do the brief, it's just going to be two minutes just to get a taste of it. Okay? So go back to the original partner. Tell me what helps you to be less attached to views. Okay? And you can answer it as you wish. Okay? Go ahead. 
can start. Okay, let's switch. Just to be brief, about two minutes.
So thank your partner in whatever way you'd like. Finish your thoughts. And then uh, come back to the whole group now. We have some time for sharing what we might have found and any questions from the, from the talk. So I think what, it, what partly, partly what I was hoping with that exercise is that we can have a sense of the, uh, the interest and the, uh, kind of the fun of exploring views. Was it fun to explore views? How many had some fun? Yeah, there's something about this method which, which can be uh, um, at times humorous, insightful. So my hope is that this becomes something really interesting to look at. It is fascinating. It's fascinating how we have this raw experience and we overlay the world with views, isn't it? It's pretty interesting when you look at it. So any observations or questions that have come from the exercise, uh, the talk, or anything that's occurred to you? But maybe first, just observations, something that you noticed from the, uh, from the exercise. Yeah. When we started, I didn't think I would have any answers for it at all. Yeah. And, and A little they, closer to your mouth. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when I started, um, I didn't think I would have any answers. I couldn't think of. And then with it happening, the answers just came. That's right. They just came. And they, the first ones were very maybe superficial. Yeah. And then more and more. Came. So that as you sort of let yourself just be with it in a fresh way, things came to you that weren't on your... Uh, weren't in your awareness originally, and that it, it felt like you were actually learning and exploring. Yes. How many had that experience? Yeah, that's great. That's that's really the purpose of this. You know, it's because of the repetition has potential to go into what's normally unconscious, right? That's part of the methodology. Thank you. Uh, others, maybe just reports. Uh, anything you noticed? Any any questions as well? Um, I discovered that um, through the interchange that um, we are a product of our environment yeah. and our culture yeah. and our views are formed this way Right. and how we both believe that deeply and how um, our personal lives affect our viewpoints um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and how the media has a tremendous um, sway over our viewpoints. Yeah, yeah, that we're, we're subject to all sorts of influences in terms of having this or that view, right? And I think part of the um, challenge that I think uh, uh, most of us or maybe all of us have taken on is to not take our views for granted, right? It's to say, I want to inquire and maybe some of the views I've had from my conditioning are helpful but maybe a lot of them are not. And how do I identify them? And how do I transform them? How do I, how do I most of all, have clarity about what the views actually are? Because otherwise we're a little bit like program robots, aren't we? Uh, which, uh, when we look at this, we can, we can sometimes be shocked by the extent to which we have, uh, we are following certain kinds of conditioning. Yeah. 
I'm just like my... <laughs> yeah, others. Uh, any ob- other observations or, or questions? Some of the views that we can have are about other people and their behavior and might involve a judgment about the skillfulness or unskillfulness or whatever of the other person. And it strikes me that that given that it's unlikely that you can change someone else's views or behavior, it's an opportunity to respond with compassion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Thank you. Yeah, part, partly. Um, remember the the way that I've distinguished the judgmental mind from what I call discernment is that with judgmental mind, there's a presence of reactivity, and reactivity takes uh, two main forms. One is attaching or grasping. The other is pushing away. Right, and in, in a way, they're they're expressions of the same thing. They're both reacting or not wanting what's there. And what we want to do, is particularly um, if we're reactive, it's very hard to be skillful with a view. So we first of all want to see, am I reactive in relation to this view, either my own by attaching onto it or another's view by pushing it away or possibly attaching onto it. We want to track for that. That's a big part. That's a big part of our training because generally the training that we get here is to, if you think of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, it's really to transform reactivity. Because that's, I I use reactivity, as you know, for a synonym for what typically is called suffering. You know, in in the translations of dukkha. Because, uh, and, and try to say that there's a distinction between something being painful and the suffering is some kind of further resistance, you know, uh, to what's present. You know, that's where I bring in the teaching of the two arrows. Remember that, which I, I give a lot. Um, that, uh, that distinction between being with what's painful. We all sometimes have painful experiences, but the suffering comes when we are reactive. When I'm sick and I'm really blaming myself or another person for being sick, it's very different from just having unpleasant body sensations when I'm sick, right? So that... Uh, the goal of our, our practice is not to get rid of pain, but it's actually to minimize or get rid of the suffering. That's what our work is, right? To, to, it's the reactivity. So we cannot like something, but am I really attached and reactive? That's what we're looking at generally. So, yeah, we want to really uh, look into that, see what, our, you know, see what the views are, and, uh, yeah, and notice when... Because the reactivity is going to make it very, very hard for me to listen to other people, right? It's going to tend to make me attached to certain views and very reactive to others. Listening, empathy, and actually good relationships go out the window. And so that's partly, the invitation is partly to explore. And again, we're wanting to say, what's the difference between that reactivity, the attachment to the views, and actually seeing something clearly. That's, what, that's why I added that second question in the exercise. You know, what's the, you know, what helps you to be less attached? Maybe any responses to that one? Because that's partly a clue to how we actually have views uh, 
but in a less attached or non-attached way. In the back, yeah. What helps you be less attached to views? But you, we still can have them. We, we're not asking ourselves to get rid of views. Yeah. Well, um, when we were talking, my partner mentioned that if she's less stressed and does meditation and other things to yeah. reduce her stress, she's not as reactive. Yeah, yeah. So, in a way, it's seeing what helps the one to be less reactive. What helps you to what helps you to listen? You may be responding to this, but maybe someone else could too. What helps you to listen to someone with a different view? Yeah, please. You, you don't have to answer that question. That is actually what exactly what okay. I was going to answer, which is it is to also have the other person not be reactive. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's sort of hard because in this room, everybody's trying not to be reactive and right. we're all sort of on the same wavelength, but right. if you go home or out in the world or... And you have an opinion or something you're attached to in a judgment, and you say, "Okay, I don't want to, I, I don't want to be reactive," and so you let go and you try to be empathic and understanding, but the other person is not, and they're just like, "Yeah, so I'm right." <laughs> then that yeah, that's hard. That's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. Yeah, I have two thoughts there. One is that uh, we should write our Congress people to have them sponsor a bill to have all political candidates take a non-attachment to views training. <laughs> I think Spirit Rock would offer it <laughs> once we've worked out our attachment to our views. <laughs> um, and second, yeah, the second thought is, and this is an important one, because I think what you're pointing to is a very, very uh, typical and important situation to see how we're going to respond to which is that it's very helpful in contemplating how we practice with another person to have a sense that there, uh, this way I frame it, that there are five different options, or maybe not options, but five different possibilities with that other person. <clears throat> the first option is that, uh, <clears throat> is that I do my own inner practice on my own. Okay. Second, second possibility is second person does the uh, inner practice. Might be, okay, I'm really going to look into my reactivity. The third possibility is that uh, both of you uh, actually also work on how you relate to others. This could be where we bring in the listening, where we bring in skillful speech and so forth. So the third possibility is that I do that. The fourth possibility is the other person does it. The fifth possibility is that we all do all of those and we cooperate together. Now, a lot of, uh, very, the, the fifth situation is optimal, where you have two people, maybe like here, where people have a commitment to inner practice and then we're doing this outer practice, maybe of listening, being respectful towards others' views, and we're working cooperatively together, right? A lot of situations, we uh, don't have that option we always have two options or two possibilities. Which are those? Yeah, basically that I do my inner work and I do my best outer work. And sometimes that's the best we can do. But we often have the idea, because the other person isn't cooperative or not on my wavelength, I, my practice goes out the window. That's not helpful. Right? That I can always commit. And it's lonely sometimes. It's hard. I'm doing mine and the other person is just attached to the view and giving me back, you know, 
this or that. We can still be skillful. The other person not being skillful doesn't mean that we have to give up trying to be skillful. But it's hard, it's lonely, and so forth. Yeah, maybe uh, one more comment and we'll, then we'll finish. Or actually two more, yeah, then we'll finish. <clears throat> so I'm thinking particularly of political disagreements. Yeah. This is the season, of course. Um, and I have a, a, a difficult time when either I hear comments or I'm speaking to someone who I know is voicing a incredible untruth yeah. that was promoted and started by um, politicians, yeah. right, to prove their point. Yeah. And the person has adopted it as if it was true. Yeah. And, and so I just have a particularly hard time with that. I could, I could cite instances, but I won't bore everyone with yeah. it. But I'm just curious your thoughts about How to that. work with that. <clears throat> have, you ever, uh, have you ever held uh, untruths yourself? Probably. Some that you were maybe conditioned by media or by upbringing? Yeah. Yeah, we can, I think it's actually, um, you know, it's, I mean, a starting point can be empathy. You know, and, and not, and watching the tendencies to polarize, right? And ideally there might be some opportunity to actually to dialogue and talk about it. But one can have some empathy. The person may be having, maybe having what you think is an untrue view for different reasons, Right? Maybe because the person simply was uninformed, right? Or had this, this, uh, heard this on the news or whatever. And so if you simply uh, have a judgmental attitude towards that person, nothing's going to happen. Can one be empathic, you know, and, and work with this? Not, that's not easy, right? Because one can be triggered. So what's important to do in terms of practice is to see, when I hear this, do I get triggered? Do I get reactive? Can I actually try to listen? And maybe, uh, again, maybe can I listen for what's helpful or what's a shared view, even though this one particular point I think is, is not true? Can I, in other words, how would I listen if my goal was to communicate as opposed to simply condemn and to watch the attachments? So this is, this is not easy, right? But you probably could, you know, you probably have done that with people you really love many, many times. I would imagine we all have. And you can think back to those examples. Or again, it can help to know that we all have believed things because we were told them that we later learned were not true, whether it's you know, social, political, or whatever. Okay. Yeah. And last one, uh, Jane, please, up front. <clears throat> I think that might have just been covered, but, and it's sort of uh, what Nancy said, is one of the things that can help me see um, and get less attached to my own view is sometimes when there is you're in that situation where somebody is really um, not working on it. Little, little so you're, somebody's yeah. not working on it, and you're sort of that that person. Sometimes it just trans. It becomes so clear that they're holding on because they are in such pain. Right. And just by being able to acknowledge that, yeah, I can let loose a little bit that's, of where that's I great. am. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is generally part of what we would call empathy practice, which is a crucial practice. I haven't discussed it in these sessions, but, you know, at other times in the last few years I have, which is, uh, can one tune in empathically 
Um, one, of, one, of the, one of the resources that has helped me and others develop empathy practice is nonviolent communication. In that practice, there's an assumption that every person at every moment is acting to meet some kind of deep need, which is generally taken to be valid. So, uh, and, and there's a distinction between need and strategy. So someone might be wanting to, uh, you know, the typical example would be someone might be abusing alcohol in a search for peace. The search for peace is quite valid. The strategy of using alcohol may be very unskillful. And so someone who actually is, has a view, may have, there may be something underneath that we can connect with that's separate from the view. We can also know the feeling. We sometimes can also see that a lot of attachment to views, and we can see this politically certainly, is connected with pain. You know, uh, people have views that involve scapegoating because there's pain and they think, I think mistakenly, that scapegoating <clears throat> will resolve the pain. That's been used for uh, millennia, right? That technique has been used for millennia and is being used now. That, and, and there's pain there and one can have some empathy for that. I think that's what you're pointing to. Again, you can see it very easily politically. That's not easy to uh, uh, notice in the moment, is it? But one, if one studies your own view, I mean, I'll, I'll close with this. One of the things that I found in studying the judgmental mind <clears throat> is I found that the judgmental mind, when I looked at my own experience, virtually always came out of some kind of pain, even if the pain was minor the minor pain of impatience at someone on the cell phone at the traffic light who deprives me, who makes me start three seconds later. And I, right? That there's some, I, I'm the pain is the pain of impatience. What I found when I looked at the judgmental mind, every time I looked there, there was some pain that was driving the judgment. And I think that's probably true for attachment to views as well. That's sometimes hard to see. It helps a lot if we can see that in, one's, in ourselves first. That makes a difference. Okay? So, thanks for this inquiry. Pretty interesting. We could take a whole day on this, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, my invitation, I'm going to do one more time next time on this theme. I'm going to try to go into yet more, more subtle dimensions of this. And I think do some exercises. And so my invitation is to stay with one of the practices which most appeals to you from the ones I mentioned. Could be just noticing with mindfulness any attachment to views. Noticing what your views are. Writing them down, taking notes. Second practice could be um, seeing when there's a charge around views and taking that as a starting point for inquiry. A third practice could be listening, particularly to people with other views. Someone has a different view, all of a sudden, ah, light bulb goes on, time for listening. <laughs> Empathy, ah, whatever. And then if you want to have a friend or a partner or someone, family member, do this repeating question with you again, feel free to do it. <laughs> Use the repeating questions if you've enjoyed that. So... Let's end here. Let's see. I'll, I'll end with a poem by Rilke. Okay? This is related to what we're exploring. 
But maybe first just see what, what am I called to do maybe in the next week with this question of views, attachment to views, inquiry into views. See, what, see if any of those exercises or practices uh, draw you. This is from Rilke. This is from his letters to a young poet. Be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like lock rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. The point is to live everything. Live the questions now. This might be a question related to a view. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So we close by remembering that we conduct this inquiry, we do our practices, uh, ultimately for the benefit of all. And we close with the dedication of merit. May this be beneficial to all, to all beings, remembering that we are part of all beings, so we're also wishing this to be benefit to ourselves. So thank you again, and uh, may the next week be wonderful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.